Welcome, I'm Stuart Coleman, Learning and Business Development Director at the Open Data Institute, and I'm delighted to have you join us here for our third ODI Inside Business podcast. Today, we're going to be exploring a really important topic with our expert panelists, data strategy and why it matters for businesses more now than ever. But before I introduce our guests, I'd like to quickly introduce the Open Data Institute. The ODI was co-founded in 2012 by the inventor of the web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and artificial intelligence expert, Sir Nigel Shadbock. The ODI's mission is to work with companies and governments to build an open, trustworthy data ecosystem. We want a world where data works for everyone. So the question of data strategy is a fundamental one. Before we open up this discussion, I'd like to introduce our guests and some of their highly relevant experience. Delighted to introduce Ming Tang. Uh, Ming is National Director of Data and Analytics at NHS England and the NHS Improvement Centre. Ming brings us 20 years of experience in managing and delivering large-scale change involving implementation of new operating models across a range of complex and challenging environments. So thank you very much, Ming, for joining us. You've got a fantastic amount of experience to share. Thanks, Stuart. It's really good to be here. Delighted to now introduce Lou Jordanova. Lou is the founder and CEO of PlanA.Earth. PlanA.Earth are a Berlin-based startup building and, and, and developing an algorithm which predicts where and how climate change will hit the hardest. Um, Planet.Earth provide a digital platform to their customers to help them reduce environmental impact, engage their, their staff uh, and partners and drive their own agenda towards being more carbon neutral. Lou was recently announced as a Marshall Fund Fellow for 2021 and a 30 under 30 social entrepreneur by Forbes in 2020. So Lou, it's great to have you with us. You're obviously building out a business which is highly relevant to where we go in the world. Uh, thanks for making time to be here. Thank you so much, Stuart. Next up and uh, hailing from, I guess you're up in, in the north today, Caroline, is Caroline Gorski. Caroline's work spans developing the strategy and implementation of data innovation and capabilities across the entire group of Rolls-Royce and is responsible for generating value for the group as a whole. Caroline graduated from Oxford University with an MA and then spent 25 years advising and managing strategic change at leading technology businesses um, with a particular focus in more recent years on Internet of Things uh, and notably um, had a role as head of IoT and digital manufacturing at the UK's Digital Catapult, which for those of you who are not aware is part of the UK's research and development investment into such technologies. Caroline maintains a cluster of non-exec roles in the Internet of Things sector and works also uh, independently to advise and support regional and national governments in digital strategy. Caroline, thanks for, for being with us. Thank you, Stuart. Nice to be here. Um, last and by no means least, I would love to welcome and I'm delighted to welcome Justin. Justin and I know each other from many years. Um, Justin is CEO and co-founder of Doodil. Doodil have over many years worked with a range of open, shared and proprietary data to build a know your business for life platform, ensuring organisations in heavily regulated sectors have real time insights on all their customers to stay ahead uh, and to reduce risk. Doodil specialises in helping these businesses quickly and safely onboard customers uh, and Justin himself comes 
from a range of backgrounds, including launching two US-based financial technology companies. And, and in more recent years, Justin was founding non-executive director of Innovate Finance, which people may or may not be aware is the trade organization driving the fintech growth out of the UK. Justin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Stuart. So I'd like to, to kick off with a very simple but quite searching question. Um, what is data strategy? I tested a few search engines on this in the last few days, not just Google, and I always get directed to the homepage of corporate technology companies, which is perhaps not ideal for anyone who is looking to develop their data strategy from a non-partisan position. Ming, can I, can I start with you, please? What does data strategy mean to you and your work at the NHS? Thank you, Stuart. So for us, it's really making sure that we've got a, a robust plan to make sure that we've got all the foundation kind of components in place in terms of what we want to get out of data, how we want to interact, how we want to make access available. And then I guess the plumbing in terms of how we store the data, how we have this security, make sure we've got the access controls correctly, but also understanding the underpinning why and what we share, and then the mechanism by which we make that data available. So it's an all-rounded thing if, if we look at um, data as a utility that's really important to inform better business decisions. It's really also reaching out to the users of the data to understand what they want to do with the data and make sure that we have the tools and techniques to make sure the data latencies is best, the data quality is as best as we can, and then how we version and manage that data to maintain it is also a really important aspect. So a lot of plumbing, but also quite strategic in terms of utilisation of it and making sure that we're making it available to the best people for the best purpose. Thanks, Ming. So, so I guess in some ways you've described there uh, a vision of data playing a role as infrastructure um, for your customers, partners, and ultimately, I guess, at the end of the line patients and and that's kind of synonymous with the the vision we try to get people to adopt at the ODI is to think about data as infrastructure. Um, what about on the other side of the lens? Lou, you're you're running a, an early stage business, but I guess you're trying to engage and onboard large organizations to adopt your platform and service. When you talk to them, what does data strategy mean for them as well as for you? I guess for you it's core, cool, you're a, you're a data-driven business, but can you give us a perspective please? Of course, yeah. For those that are not informed, what Planet does, of course, as explained by Stuart, is addressing climate change, but in a more practical level, this has uh, resulted in a software that enables businesses to calculate, monitor and reduce their emissions. We kind of, if I can take the last comment that was made, uh, work with data in kind of the totally opposite way, because unfortunately, climate-related data, environmental data, anything related to ESG is quite distributed unequally across an organization. So when it comes to strategy uh, for the topic that we cover, one of the main challenges and the main tasks that we have for our clients is organizing the data and making it in a format that is compliant to the regulatory frameworks to then result in actionable items that they can work on in effort to reduce their emissions. Is this organizing their data that they give you? You have to work with data that's often not to the quality or the, or the kind of frequency you might require? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, unlikely to what is the situation elsewhere, uh, we need to get the company to understand where this data is even sitting because previously they never analyzed it, let alone made decisions based off of it. So our job is to organize the data and collect essentially data spanning from one department to the other to then transform this into a universal understanding of what is the sustainability level of the company. Thank you. So I think the picture you've painted, Lou, is, is obviously having to work with data that you can't always get to the level of quality you, you would want. Uh, and I guess my own experience, which is fairly significant in the clean technology space, is that the standards around reporting on environmental activities uh, are not consistent across the globe. So there's probably quite a lot of challenging trade-offs in the work you're doing. Um, Caroline, uh, Rolls-Royce, I mean, obviously a lot of people just think of big engines when they think of Rolls-Royce, but what came through in our discussion the other day was was in some ways how mature Rolls-Royce is in the way it's been working with data, um, certainly internally and with customers and partners. But you highlighted an increasing involvement and, and focus on using external data, on data that perhaps doesn't come from your own activities. Can you just expand on that in the context of, of what it means for the data strategy that you are responsible for in Rolls-Royce, please? Yes, yeah, sure. So one of the things that's very interesting about Rolls-Royce is that we aren't a business-to-consumer business. We're a business-to-business business. In the end, customers who you know travel on the trains or, or a cruise on the boats or are in the planes that our power systems are supporting, or indeed are you know the users of the internet technology that's being supported by the power generating systems in in data centres that we provide. Those are actually the customers of our customers, and so understanding patterns in those marketplaces isn't a direct. We don't have a direct path to that, uh, so we need to think about how much can we sense, how much can we understand about about changes in dynamics and pattern dynamics in the outside world when we don't necessarily have direct access to that information as part of our own operating experience or a data perspective. That's a fascinating insight. Thank you. So so in, in some respects, in more recent years, it's been a huge opportunity. Is that, is that because the, the, these data sources have become on, online available more than they were before? Or it's just that, that perhaps Rolls-Royce hadn't, hadn't seen the importance of them before? I think there's a process of maturation that happens when you start to try to transform an organisation, particularly a kind of relatively traditional and and to some degree legacy organisation like a a manufacturing and engineering company. As you start to move that organisation into being a data-driven organisation, I I think there are cycles of maturity. You start by looking at your own domain, right? You start by saying, how can data help to inform the decisions I make, if you like, within the four walls of my operations? And then you start to ask, okay, now can it, how can it help me make decisions about my products outside of the four walls of my operation, but still within the confines of you know, what I can learn about my products? And it takes a little time. I think there are multiple stages of data maturity that you need to go through before you really expand out to understanding how you might engage with data that is, is several steps beyond your, your direct involvement with the world. And so I, I, I think it's more a reflection of the organisation going through that process of increasing data sophistication and increasing data maturity. Thanks, thanks, Caroline. J- Justin, Doodle, I mean, I have some knowledge of your business, obviously, but it's moved on a lot since since we kind of worked together. As I see it, unless, unless I'm wrong, your business is dependent on external data sources. 
And then you're working with heavily regulated businesses who I'm guessing put a microscope on, on, on the services you're providing. So, you know, what does data strategy mean for you at, at Doodle as an organization is almost wholly dependent on, and obviously you generate some of your own data, but just give us some more context there. Yeah. So um, I guess I, I would sort of start with this idea of data strategy as being distinct from strategy in general. Thinking about that in, in separate terms might make sense for, for, for certain organizations, but particularly for business like ours, and I think even for businesses where data isn't a core part of the value proposition, I would tend to merge those two, whereby data strategy is a integral leg of whatever the overall corporate strategy is. So, you know, as you were, as you were indicating, we mix together different types of uh, information from different sources. So we're going to government or authoritative sources such as Companies House, HMRC, Registries Trust, ONS. We're combining that with third-party sources. So this might be information from credit bureaus or other third-party data providers um, where we have a licensing relationship. And then, you know, the kind of magic that we apply is really around the processing, the linking, and the enrichment of that information to construct what we refer to as our business information graph. And, and the best way to think about the business information graph is really a, a digital map of the economy and all of the businesses, directors, and shareholders within it. And so, as you said, what we're, what we're looking to do is really take those first two components of authoritative and third-party data and crunch it through our platform so that we can then enrich that and provide additional context around these businesses and the relationships between them. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, and I guess um, as more and more businesses are regulated in different sectors, you've worked a lot with financial services, but I'm sure those propositions will be increasingly relevant to to other sectors too. For, for people listening to this podcast, they may or may not be aware, the UK government themselves has been working on a national data strategy in recent months and has, has worked on that in, a, in an open consultative process. Um, the Open Data Institute and other organisations have contributed and fed back on that approach. And I think one of the things that struck me about seeing that process take shape is, is kind of building on the, on the point that Justin just raised, it's data strategy needs to form a kind of foundational leg of wider organizational or corporate strategy if you're if you're in a in a business entity organizational obviously you know might might apply to kind of complex multi-tiered organizations like the the national health service i mean ming in the context of the nhs how consistent do you think is is data strategy across the extended organization i think the trick is to work at the principal level because we are so federated but also put in the infrastructure so that people can be consistent so we really do need to augment data between national data sources and local data sources and it's really how do we find the units of measure that work for that and I think what we're trying to do is make the NHS much more data driven and in if you think about it through that lens what are the things that we're trying to redesign um, in services that require data and how do we digitalize a lot of the information that we collect so that there's less burden 
on the front line. So a lot of the data we collect is, is fairly manual today. So a lot of the data strategy is really converging on making sure that we improve the way we use digital and improve the way that we collect that data in a more standard way and therefore we can have a more consistent conversation between you know national bodies and local Mm. systems so that's that's a really important plank of the national strategy i think and how much of that improving and changing the way data is collected is an area that needs kind of behavioral change where where does the biggest challenge lie I think the biggest challenge lies is in the lens that we use for data. At the moment, data collection is very much based on organisation lens, so things that happen within the war, within an institution or an organisation, or within a national body. And what we need to start moving towards is the lens of the citizen or the individual that's accessing services. And then if you move to that lens, you automatically change the units of measure and also the collection systems that you need to put in place. And that then helps us move to the digital journey to say, actually, there are packets of data every time someone interacts with the health service. How do we make sure all those packets actually line up to a data model? Then that allows us to use information in a much more productive way. Obviously, it's behaviour, but it almost breaks down the organisation silos. If you look at it through that lens, if we can get consensus on that, then actually I think we can leapfrog some of the difficulties that we've had in the past. And obviously that then opens a big IG question and concern. And I think part of what we're trying to do is part of the data strategy is to engage with the public so that we can be more open and transparent on how the data about them is being collected and used and the future vision of how their data can also be contributed and they can see how we how we augment the data using their own contribution. I think that's a really unleashed the power of data, data in the health service, okay. a health and care service, pan- actually. Yeah. And I guess the pandemic has, sh- has shone a light more and more on the criticality of, of that data infrastructure and hopefully engaged pe- people, patients and, and citizens to, to, to want to kind of share their data in perhaps ways they, they haven't before. Yeah, and and it's also changed the lens at which we use data. So I was having a discussion with one of the analyst teams last week, you know, where they were really concerned about small number suppression. And my take on it is if we are trying to target vaccine to hard to reach populations, actually suppressing small numbers to 20 doesn't help us target (laughs) Um, and and therefore there are different lenses to which that we want to supply and the fact that we've had to cobble together quite difficult information to get ethnicity a correct ethnicity or we're trying to reach those those individuals that don't have an NHS number what are some of the solutions for that for the homeless etc that may not be registered to a GP it throws a light on all those disparities and inequalities that now we've we've got a bit more of a consensus around how we solve some of those problems and therefore that will only enrich the data that we have and therefore make our services more equitable and accessible in the future. Thank you, Ming. I mean, just some of the points you raised a bit earlier in that narrative. I mean, we, we the ODI, have often seen if the challenges around having strong information governance can be a result of, of earlier challenges around interoperability and standardisation, which really ultimately need to be the kind of kernels of support um, behind any kind of data infrastructure strategy. I mean, Lou, you're, you're working 
uh, I guess, in multiple geographies in an area that's getting increasing momentum as people and certainly organisations more and more are recognising and making more public commitments around reducing their environmental footprint. But things like carbon accounting, I mean, that the standardisation in that area has, has still got a long way to go, right? So how how do you get people to kind of behave in consistent ways in helping you develop their data infrastructure? Because ultimately you're dependent on their data in part, not in entirety, I'm sure you're, you're gathering data yourself. But can you just kind of give an insight into the sort of challenges you're facing there? Absolutely, Stuart. And this is an incredibly important question because if we want to go a step beyond strategy, we also need to think of what does it result in when it comes to actions that the companies uh, take. Uh, so, for those of you that are not familiar with carbon accounting and actually the methodology behind it, there's three levels of scopes of data that are to be collected by a company. Scope one is about the direct emissions that come from the facilities and vehicles of the company. Scope two is about the electricity, fuel, heating, cooling that is used by this particular company. And where it gets exciting, it's scope three, where we're talking about suppliers and any third parties, investments, assets which are contributing to the scope three. To give a perspective of what is the distribution of these three scopes across different industries, we can take uh, automotive where at 98% and plus of the data is actually related to scope three and actually you can imagine that this is also the CO2 emissions. So a huge amount is actually outside of the scope of the organization itself. One of the challenges that we face, uh, even though we have developed, of course, a platform, an infrastructure to automate the process of data collection and kind of put the house in order, as we always say, so that you have a good overview of the status quo you have at the moment when it comes to, to climate change, climate risks, ESG, sustainability, gets us as far as the quality also of the data that the company has and also as far as the gaps of this data are. To be able to compensate the gaps in the data, we actually are using machine learning uh, and different algorithms that essentially relying on existing data and are modeling up what could be the CO2, the predicted value of the CO2. Having said that, and as good as we get, you can imagine that, uh, you know, if you actually have the data, the outcomes and the decisions you're going to make on it are going to be a lot more impactful which is where we really focused on developing a framework that becomes universally used in terms of how data is collected and what kind of cues you can give not only to our clients but anyone that is looking into understanding where they're standing with sustainability in order to make their data work for them so that also it works for the planet, it works for their clients, it works for their suppliers and all of us essentially are able to act uh, universally in the most meaningful manner. Thanks, Lou. That's interesting. I guess something occurred to me through through the course of this conversation is that, that, you know, there's potentially a kind of blurring of the information flows. I mean, in I mean, Justin, the Doodle proposition is, is I'm, you know, I'm guessing has, has initially come from having very core reference data about businesses that helps build that information or that, that business graph. But I'm guessing increasingly that y- you might be seeing demand or interest from customers to to have some of the sort of information that, that organizations like Lou are helping them with, right? But how, how does that kind of external data infrastructure, how are you seeing that develop and the type of strategy organizations have around that type of information come your way? Yes, some of my co-panelists have, have touched on aspects of this, but I'll 
call back to sort of two points that I think are important, one of which Ming raised around the, the kind of units of measurement. And then, although this term wasn't used, you know, I think I've, I've sort of heard this alluded to by a few people. And um, it's certainly a term that we use a lot in, inside our organization, which is observa- relates to observability, right? And, and this is where I, I think that, um, you know, your point, Stuart, about the ODI's view as, as data of infra- infrastructure really starts to you know, hold some hold some water as an argument because the the data, the collection and preparation of the data, is obviously where there's a lot of effort applied, and how you go about doing that quite often dictates the limits of what you can accomplish through the enrichment and the analysis of of the information later on. So, you know, our kind of first order problem, or you know, the, the scope scope one that we're looking at within our business right now, is you as you correctly pointed out, is really helping regulated institutions, predominantly financial institutions, insurers, fintech companies, understand the customers that they're onboarding. And and quite often these are small and medium-sized enterprises up to kind of mid-corporates, generally private companies. And we could, you know, to to extend the analogy, call that scope one of, of, of our business in terms of, you know, the immediate customer. But there's obviously a much wider network that branches out in terms of, you know, the suppliers of our client and then the customers and suppliers of the customers that they're onboarding. And I think, you know, as you start to reach into that network, having high degree of resolution around those units of measurement and having the systems in place where, you know, data governance takes on a kind of more encompassing phrase than than just sort of privacy and and policies and so on, but actually the infrastructure that you use to process and analyze that data, that's where you start to really open up, I think, some interesting possibilities. And so I think in terms of where we are now, we can see that potential. I think a lot of our clients can see that potential. I'm hoping that through things like open banking, we start to realize some of it, but I would say that we're still quite early days in, in actually delivering that that promise. Thank, thanks, Justin. Look, I, th- I think Thank you, thank you, everyone. I think on, on, on these key discussion points, I mean, I kind of feel like we've we've really looked at um, how best you can build data infrastructure, where the gaps lie, either because you're you're not able to collect all the data you want or it's not available. Um, I'd like to switch tack and I'd like to talk specifically about people and behaviour. I think one of the, the perhaps the early um, challenges in building people's perceptions of what data literacy is about is a lot of people see it as a technical skill uh, and, and we certainly don't see it that way at the Open Data Institute. Um, Caroline, earlier you, you talked or you referenced some of the challenges around the manufacturing style organisation thinking and behaving with data. Can you, can you just go into a bit more depth there and perhaps surface a few examples of where you've seen some of the barriers to working effectively with data? Yes, sure. So, so... One of the things that is part of the article of data as remit is that we are, as well as being responsible for helping Rolls-Royce to generate value from data and and sort of holding the technical leadership around data analytics and artificial intelligence, we're also responsible for the digital cultural transformation program at Rolls-Royce. And so that means that we engage with our colleagues uh, around a very broad curriculum, which, which covers everything from basic digital mindset and experiential activities that you know might be 
learning about agile methodology. It might be about learning how to do programming in Scratch with a Lego robot. It might be about uh, running through entrepreneurship programs and thinking about what it means to be an innovator. So that very broad scope of the curriculum goes all the way from, as I say, very experiential and and cultural and mindset-orientated programs all the way up to a full master's degree in artificial intelligence. And that program last year delivered uh, training to about 35,000 Rolls-Royce employees around the world. Uh, And we also made that curriculum available as part of our response to COVID-19 to the general public and actually put nearly 30,000 members of the general public through some element of that curriculum. And I think what's very interesting from the perspective of where the challenges are, certainly inside Rolls-Royce as, a, as, a, as an engineering and a technical organisation, the challenges are not in, if you like, the sort of numerical skills of the population. We have a very advanced numerically um, skilled population. The, the challenge comes more, I think, from the migration of those skills into a, a much more agile and iterative approach to to deploying those skills. So if you think about how uh, you know a traditional manufacturing engineer or indeed thermodynamic engineer might have gone through their career, they will have spent a significant period of time, years and years, developing very, very deep domain expertise. Migrating that into a digital world where you know you're expected to run a, run a sprint and, and perhaps come back with a an early stage prototype or an MVP within you know a week or a couple of weeks. That's a very different dynamic. It's also a world in which you make your mistakes very much in public and getting comfortable with understanding where it's appropriate to do that, because it's obviously not appropriate to do that everywhere in my organisation. So, you know, we, we we need to understand where it's appropriate that those capabilities get used in our business and how they can help to open up greater agility, open up greater creativity, open up greater scope for innovation that's, that's built on a robust basis of data. The second thing I think that's a blocker is just the quality and accessibility and machine intelligibility of the data full stop. So I was really taken with some of the things that Ming was describing about the federalised nature of of the NHS. And actually, when you think about an organisation like Rolls-Royce, which has been in operation for more than 100 years, some of our products will last for 50, 60, 70 years in operation in the field. So that means that when they were originally designed, the design notations, the drawings, the information about the, you know, the beginnings of, of the genesis of those products is probably in a box written on a piece of paper or possibly in a PDF, but certainly not, it's not structured, it's unstructured in many instances. And so a lot of what my team does is actually focus on how do you use new artificial intelligence techniques to extract meaning from unstructured, technically complex data, or all realms in which the kind of mass market OCD technologies, uh, OCR technologies don't work very well. Therefore, you know, a lot of our focus and attention is actually on getting the data into a fit shape so that it can be used in some of those more agile mindset changing uh, processes that come with an adoption of digital behaviors across an organization like ours. I guess, you know, one of the things that I just wanted to sort of come back to with regards to how you then maybe change, start to change that behavior um, and, and, you know, get people comfortable with 
um, either interacting and contributing the information in a new way or um, indeed providing um, consent to, to look at data that is otherwise privileged. You know, I think we've, we've slightly missed a trick as, as a society because there's a tendency to sort of think about data as distinct, either, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, distinct from the overall strategy or, as we're discussing now, distinct from actual people. And when we saw open banking kind of hit the scene, there was a lot of excitement and potential around, you know, what open banking could could do. But I think the first generation of applications that we saw off the back of open banking, a lot of them were what I would consider to be very sort of feature oriented and not particularly benefit oriented. So, you know, there were a lot of things that, you know, if you gave access to your data, it would allow you to visualize it in a new way. It might help you figure out some insight about your behavior, but um, it wasn't all that clear what the value exchange was. And I think that as we sort of go forward and we try and get people contributing within more developed data governments or data governance or information governance frameworks, sharing increasingly private information with privileged third parties, you know, trying to get them to move from a pattern of behavior that maybe wasn't conducive to easily interacting with the data to one which is, you know, you've got to be really, really clear on what the benefit is to them and how quickly they can expect to receive that benefit. So I think, you know, we just have to think about the role that incentives play in, in changing people's behavior, whether it's in a public organization, you know, public facing organization or, or indeed a private company. Thanks, Justin. I think it's a very interesting point there about the role of regulation in compelling people to share data. Um, Justin mentioned the reciprocity that people are willing to share if they see they're going to get something back. And open banking is an opportunity in the UK, or it has been regulated. So it's kind of driven that change. I mean, surely that, that poses potentially an opportunity or a question to the environmental data space. Lou, what, what do you see as the biggest kind of behavioural barriers? Thank you so much for this question. Actually, I'm super excited. I, I had so many ideas from the last comments that were made just because We've experienced like a totally different uh, realm of emotions when people are asked to share data. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have seen is the fact that people have a two-sided relationship with data. On one hand, companies that are really agile and innovative are using data in every single element of their decision making because they know that these are the true insights behind the behavior of the client, behind the choices that their customers are making. But on the other hand, all of us have faced kind of threats to our personal, all of the private data issues we've seen with social media. So unfortunately, there's still kind of this common denominator when we speak about data that kind of goes from the private to the public sector, uh, but it leaves people with, with a different opinion that is not always the most useful when you want to collect data that is supposedly going to make you better at handling the health of our planet uh, and your own sustainability level. So what we normally do uh, and kind of how we address this particular issue is that we use the benefit of the cause that we have. Uh, yes, we work with banks, but banks are particularly threatened by having to do stress tests. And if they don't comply and they can fail their stress tests just because they didn't even collect the data. Soon it will be about limiting emission levels within particular industries, having less exposure to fossil fuel industries. At this stage, it's only start experimenting with the data collection process or using algorithms that can 
can assume what the data is. So this is what really helps, uh, kind of using the sentiment behind the cause and also, unfortunately or fortunately for us, uh, regulatory frameworks that are pushing for this. Uh, but I think overall one of the things that we need to focus on um, as data experts or people that work with data on a day-to-day basis, convincing organizations, employees or stakeholders to comply or support us in our journey to be uh, more transparent about what these insights from the data are, to increase the level of trust that people have in the processes and also um, in how we handle data so that this unfortunate perspective that people still have about uh, my data, uh, when it goes in the hands of someone, is going to end up being exposed and is going to make me, um, you know, be less um, in ownership of my own existence as an individual, as a company, goes away so that we are actually are able to start taking action. Really big challenge, but uh, one that we definitely need to address uh, as soon as possible. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And, and um Ming, in the NHS, I mean, I've seen over the years quite a lot of work done with uh, uh, behavioural insights work in in trying to drive change. Um, I mean, if you're thinking, you mentioned earlier kind of some of the challenges being faced, but how how can the quality and how can the data infrastructure that you're trying to be to build be supported better by behavioural change? Like if you were to kind of pick out two or three behavioural change levers you could you could kind of influence what would they be in the nhs i i think it's been a fascinating discussion actually and my head was in in the space of you know how can we build more public trust in in sharing data within health and and care and we always have quite an interesting debate with different lobby groups that say you know sharing your health data is really dangerous because it's very disclosive um, but then patients actually expecting us to have shared the data so they have to, don't have to tell the doctors the same things a number of times as they pass through the health service so actually that public debate is really important in in a similar way behavioral challenges is actually using data i think using data to demonstrate in a way the cost of some of the the public cost and also the societal cost of missing appointments is a really big one and then actually how do you get access to the way that you want to get access so what we're trying to do at the moment is look at the uptake of digital and for appointments and really use behavioral science to start understanding if we were to offer do the channel switch increasing digital uptake post pandemic or has we built the health service back together again post-pandemic. What are the things that we want to understand better and what are the data sources for that understanding? So to give you an example, we're doing, I'm working on a programme for rollout of the vaccine at the moment. And part of what we're trying to do is target hard-to-reach populations that probably have got fear of vaccines have you know some misconceptions there are multiple reasons why people are not some people are not coming forward who are the most vulnerable so they might they, they might be you know here in 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 the UK illegally and don't want to come forward but they're the people that we're really trying to target so we've done a number of things in terms of using the data to drive out better understanding of ethnicity at place level 
and and also using ethnicity and deprivation as two kind of lenses on where we should target, where we place um, kind of pop-up services so to make it more important for those individuals to come forward for vaccination. In doing all of that, we have now an ethical question of once we identify those people, how do we integrate them into the NHS so that they do have valid NHS numbers so that their access to services is better understood and therefore we can design and build better services for those individuals versus actually the privacy question that I don't actually want to be found. I'm happy to come forward for a vaccine, but we don't want you to put us on the grid, if you like. So all of those constraints and discussions, we're now starting to work with community groups to better expose those discussions. And then what we'll do is on the back of that, learn from that from a behavioural management and science perspective so that our services going forward can be better informed by, by that learning. So I think a lot of this is about the dialogue. And we've been doing quite a lot of um, work with Use My Data as a group and the Wellcome Trust as a group for health so that we can have better citizen juries and understanding of where people's concerns lie, but also how we can change our language from being quite technical to more benefits and open um, type of discussion with the public. But that's fascinating to hear and and, and it's I think it's that's really positive to hear because I would imagine that potentially reduces burden on the service as a whole if there's a if there's a mix like that in time, the fact that it might be more efficient and easier to manage that type of delivery in parallel yeah. with others. Yeah, there's a huge benefit to the workforce as well because you know we we've struggled to recruit GPs, particularly women GPs, because they, they want more of a part-time type of service. So actually having clinicians man some of these online services is it's a way for um, general practice to actually participate and, and create a better resource model for that workforce so that we can be actually more inclusive. So there are huge benefits to some of this that we, we haven't really got our heads around yet. But I think part of what we're trying to do in recovery of the NHS is to start making sure that we make the most of those digital changes as well as not just falling backwards as to how, we, how we've always done things. So in what way do you think... Uh businesses have become more comfortable uh, and more trusting to share their their data as a result of the pandemic, Carolyn? Well, I guess, I mean, I've been in this space for the best part of 25 years, and, and I would say we have made more progress in the last 12 months around data collaboration for good and, and the opportunities of large corporations and small corporations making their data available on a pro bono basis to address questions that the pandemic's raised. I think we've made more progress around that, that, that idea of more collaborative and, and not-for-profit data sharing you know, as a result of the pandemic than I think we had made at any point in the previous 20 years. And, and I kind of want almost, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible reason for that to be true, but I sort of almost want to celebrate the fact that, that we have made that progress. We, Rolls-Royce was part of a founding group that set up the Emergent Alliance back in April of 2020, which is a, a data sharing collaboration looking at economic recovery coming out of the pandemic. So we, we share data 
there's 50 organisations in the Alliance and we share data to try to help to spot actions that can be taken or brought forward or invested in to, to lessen the recessionary impact of the pandemic. And all of those organisations are doing that on a pro bono basis, on a not-for-profit basis, collaborating because they recognise that there is a greater good, there is a, there is a general public utility that can come from sharing data that would otherwise have been considered to be commercially sensitive. Thanks, Caroline. That's a great final edit because that, that language directly aligns to our theory of change at the Open Data Institute, which very much promotes being more open and, and sharing data more widely um, to, to grow and develop trust and not to hoard data. That's a really interesting observation to close on. On behalf of the Open Data Institute, I'd like to thank all our panellists today for their insights and contribution. Before we say goodbye, a reminder, if you'd like more information on the topics we've addressed today, or if you need some guidance about how to address data strategy at your organisation, check out our latest blog on data strategy and our checklist for leaders. You can find these along with other useful tools and resources on the ODI website, theodi.org. We've also included links in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next time.